morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 33. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh in what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Please be seated. Um, as Jack said before, this week is the final week of the 40 Days for Life uh, prayer vigil. I want to invite you to uh, join us to pray any day this week, but especially next uh, Saturday, March 27th, which is the second appointed day for Stony Point to pray outside Planned Parenthood. And next Sunday, which is Palm Sunday, there's a closing prayer vigil at four o'clock at Planned Parenthood, followed by a reception at Redemption Books. Uh, for more details, visit the website, which is 40daysforlife.com Richmond, or you can talk to my dear wife, who's on the front row. Thank you so much. We want to thank you for your courage in coming out, what we believe in terms of spiritual ministry and warfare is very important. It's a life-saving ministry. Women, girls, men, and of course, unborn babies are being impacted by your prayers and your faithful witness. So thank you for that. And uh, as Jack also said, we want to join our congratulations to Jordan and Crystal, as Jordan Maroon is uh, appointed Executive Director of Needles Eye Ministries. It's a big step for him, and uh, he warrants our prayer uh, as we pray daily for that ministry. Let's pray for this ministry this morning and ask that God would open our eyes and our hearts and minds to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
Father, we do thank you for your word that it is clear, that it has been given definitively for the building up of the church, that is communicated to us not simply through the words of this page, but Lord, by the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, lifting high the name of Jesus and glorifying you. Lord, may that glory be reflected this morning as we worship you, as we hear your word, and as we go out, Lord, in obedience and faith, trusting in you and asking, Lord, that you might be at work even through us. In Christ's name, amen. You know, longer than anyone can remember, the issue of the operation of the spiritual gifts in the local church has been contentious and controversial. When I was growing up, somebody took me aside and explained it to me this way. It says, he said, when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, you basically have three kinds of Christians, the fruitful, the fruitless, and the fruity, by which they meant the nutty. But I've long thought since, it's no feather in our cap to criticize others for being nutty as a fruitcake if we ourselves are fruitless. I've been thinking, if I owned a vineyard, I have aspirations to spend a year in Provence uh, working with grapes. But imagine if you were a vineyardist, a uh, vigneron. You'd be concerned if a large portion of grapes in your vineyard were the wrong color or the wrong taste or the wrong shape. But presumably, you'd be extremely concerned if you were growing nothing at all. So two principles from Paul this morning in this difficult passage as we finish this chapter. So please turn to this chapter as Teresa has read it to us. And uh, two principles uh, that I can draw as best God has shown me from this chapter. So first of all, this is verse 20 through 25. I think this principle, we're, here, we're not here to make worship about ourselves. The constables have a new puppy. He is adorable, uh, but he's also young. He's just two months old. Uh, he jumps up, he bites, he makes his own, how to put it, bathroom arrangements. We have to remind ourselves almost daily that he's just a baby. And we have asked uh, friends who are more learned in the ways of dogdom than we are, will he ever mature? Will he ever come out of this initial difficult transitional phase? Uh, two weeks, says one, optimistically. Four weeks, said another. Three months, said another more soberly, is the latest I've heard. If it's longer than that, please don't tell me. <laughs> That's one way to think about the Corinthians, I think. They were a puppy church. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, Paul says, be mature. The temptation, I think, is to read Paul as scolding them. But the tone of this is really quite warm and pastoral. Certainly he's reminding, sometimes gently warning, sometimes perhaps a little more sharply guiding, but not condemning them. In other words, this wasn't a failing church. This was a puppy church. They needed training, as we do. And that's what these letters from Paul are about. That being said, some specific things here he tells them uh, should make us sit up and take notice. First of all, verse 20, he tells them, notice, be infants in evil. It's easy to read quickly over these words, but it's worth reflecting. I think particularly in our age, 
that not to be experienced in evil, to be infants in evil, is a very good thing. People will tell you, especially in middle school and high school, that if you hadn't had this or that experience or tried that risky behavior, you are missing out. You're not cool. Like Pinocchio with the truanting boys on their way to Pleasure Island, many of us have fallen for that line, but it is a lie. We forget sometimes that the reason that God gives us commands is not because he wants to make our lives a misery. He's no kind of spoil sport, but because he wants to keep us safe and not make a shipwreck of our lives. So I didn't want to rush over that phrase. It's so eminently important that Christians, however old they are, understand the priority of being infants in evil. Second notice, as young as the Corinthians are as a church, maybe younger than five years since Paul first planted them, he has noticed quite high standards for them, quite high expectations for the way they are to read the Scripture, even the Old Testament. He calls them, you'll notice, in their thinking to be adults. But in your thinking, be mature. I was very struck by this. We typically have rather low commitment expectations for Christians in the Western church. I've heard it said that preachers should aim to be preaching at people as if they'd have a seventh grade education. But notice, Paul expects far more from the Corinthians than that. You know, they consider themselves mature, but in the way they were ranking themselves with the gifts, he's saying, Don't be like a group of excitable, self-obsessed children. Don't make worship my book about me. Understand and be mature. And third, notice it will take some hard thinking. It's going to take some intellectual effort to follow Paul's uh, train of thought here. And this is more difficult than it may first appear. The reason our own commentators have been confused about verse 21 is because what Paul says here seems to contradict what he's already said earlier about the purpose of tongues and of gifts. After all, he's just spent the first half of this chapter telling us that prophecy is for the good of believers and that tongues are only appropriate for a setting of believers. But here he seems to be reversing what he said. What's going on? Well, as far as we can tell, the key is what Paul means by the word sign, in verse 22. The quote here is from Isaiah, and you'll notice that Paul expects the Corinthians to follow his argument line here as they read Isaiah. And the context back in Isaiah 28 is about those who, even within Israel's priestly core, were rejecting God's words. They were laughing and making fun of uh, the prophet Isaiah, and they're scoffing against what God has said. In fact, in, in the original, it sounds as if they are speaking with baby talk. But God responds by telling them that the days are coming when he will speak to them in foreign languages and it will be a sign to them of how far they are from him. So in the context, understanding this, verses 21 to 23 are a fulfillment of that particular prophecy in Isaiah. Here's the J.B. Phillips translation, which I thought put it pretty well. If at a full church meeting you are all speaking with tongues and people come in who are both uninstructed and without faith, will not they say that you are insane? I've seen this happen. In college, I was involved with a charismatic church and 
I had been talking, I remember, with a friend about the Christian faith and had finally persuaded her to come to church. And she came with me to an evening service. And at one point, some folks in the service started speaking in tongues. And though she was uh, quite polite, I could tell that she thought this was utterly nuts. And looking back, I think it was a major obstacle with her and the gospel. And to the best of my knowledge, she never received Christ. As we saw last week, what's most important is that people hear the gospel in ways that they can understand. That seems to be one of Paul's priority uh, uh, statements in the first part of 1 Corinthians 14. So what's the principle here? What's the application of the principle? How should something like prophecy work? And of course, it's difficult to say because very few of us have seen what perhaps was happening in Corinth. Is prophecy somehow separated from Scripture? Is it in competition with it? Is it operating as some extra-biblical parallel authority? As if one somebody would say, you have the Bible, but I have this special revelation from God. Well, there's nothing here to suggest that that was the case. There's nothing that contradicts the primacy of the Bible. Remember, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I don't happen to believe that reading the Bible or hearing it preached is the only way that God can speak to you. But I am sure, and I think we should be sure, that the Spirit of God uses the word of the God, God in the Bible to convict us of the truth of God, whatever the situation. So it is the only time that anyone can authoritatively say, thus says the Lord, is when they are looking at the pages of the Bible. So Paul is not describing anything here, I think, that can be experienced by us today as the Spirit taking us away from Scripture. Instead, he is using this, I think, to confirm that the Spirit speaks, and chiefly through Scripture, guiding and confirming and testing other things that are said. Look at verses 24 to 25. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is, I think, one of the ways that we see that a process like this happens in Scripture and through Scripture. If you've uh, read the account of Jesus' conversation with Nathaniel right at the beginning of John's Gospel in John 1, or read of the woman at the well in John 4, Nathaniel says something like this to Jesus. He says, how do you know me? Because of what Jesus has just said to him. And the Samaritan woman tells her neighbors, come out and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Because what's happening in both cases, if you read those stories over, is that Jesus has told them things that were utterly secret, things that they thought only they knew. And the person who knows such secrets, well, he would have to be God, wouldn't he? In my experience, it still happens today. I remember meeting a woman on a flight to the UK. She was the wife of a professional soccer player uh, for the MLS. She was telling me how she had found herself at one point in her life in a desperate place, addicted to drugs. She walked into St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, and God spoke to her just like this, just like we read here in verses 24 through 25. 
She asked Jesus to come into her life, having heard God speak to her, as it were, directly through the preacher, and powerfully she felt God do so right then and there. How does this happen in our context? How could this ever be mirrored? Well, you've had a question on your mind this week. You've had an anxiety about a situation you've been thinking about. You've been weighed down with guilt about something you did in the past that the enemy enemy is bringing to bear. And then something is said in church, and you know at that moment, like a laser beam pointed at your heart, God is saying, I see you. I know you. I love you. You see, we're not here to make worship about us because what we need is not something we can make. All of the descriptions here are of the operations of the Holy Spirit, of the one who knows us and of the one who guides us ultimately and definitively through Scripture. It's something we can only receive from God as a gift, a gift by the work of the Spirit. Second, we're here to bring the gifts that we've been given to serve him. Verses 26 through 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Paul turns at the end of these three chapters to the basic question of how this will work. For our purposes, as you read this, it's frustrating. As we read this, it's as if we are only hearing one side of the conversation. Of course, we only have one side of the letters that went back and forth. Half the context here is missing. There's no detailed explanation of how this were to work. What becomes clear is really how unclear it is as to how the gifts actually operated and whether these gifts in particular were being commonly experienced across the churches. Notice that the gift list in a book like Romans, in Romans 12, is very different from the one here, suggesting perhaps that the Holy Spirit was working in different places uh, in different ways. As someone has said, the Holy Spirit would surely have made it clearer to us if it was important that we knew the exact nature of every gift or how it was to work. Paul may not be giving us a checklist against which we should measure our church to see if all the different gifts he mentions are present. But Paul is clear about three things that must be done and three things that must be true for worship to be worship that is directed by God's Spirit. In verses 26, verses 33, and verse 40, we have these kind of principial statements that guide worship. Verse 26, let all things be done for building up. There's no suggestion here, notice, that somebody should stand up and bring some word of condemnation from God or use the opportunity to attack another member of the church or to show off some gift they've been given in a way that makes others feel lesser. No, they were to build each other up in the gospel. It was a fundamental principle of the way that the church of Paul was to operate. Second verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And Paul's saying this isn't a competition The gifts that you've been given are not an opportunity for grandstanding or for showing off as if we were to say my gift is better than your gift or to measure one part of the service or one person's contribution as being more important than another. 
You know, people always tend to rate churches on the preaching or on the music or whether there are enough people of your age group or your social set. But all of those things are really quite secondary and empty if the Spirit is not at work. If the Spirit is not present and leading people and speaking, those things are only useful if the Spirit is drawing and speaking to and evidently leading the church. Third principle, verse 40, all things should be done decently and in good order. This is a picture of, I think, what God has always been delighted to do uh, through the church. You may remember way back in Genesis 1 and 2 that in the east of Eden, God planted a garden and put Adam to work it and tend it, telling him, subdue it, literally to bring order to it. This is, uh, to my mind, one of the most remarkable characteristics of our Lord, is that despite all of his power and his preeminence and the glory that is due him, he deliberately has decided to work with us. He delights in working alongside his people, through us, over us. He lets us build, he lets us design, he lets us try things out, he lets us make mistakes, he lets us produce things that are things that he is growing within his order. So for Adam and Eve, Eden was a jungle when God gave it to them. So the command was to bring order to it, to bring it into shape. And in the abundance of the gifts, and this has been the history of revivals, it's often been both edifying and shocking when the Spirit comes in power. If you know... uh, a little bit of American history, you will know this was the case in the New England revival in the 1800s. Quite remarkable things happening. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said at the time, some object against the awakening. It's a great confusion, he he said, but he added, who is going to fetch a treasure need not be sorry that he stopped by meeting the treasure in the middle of his journey. In other words, don't be thrown off course by the fact that the spirit you've been looking for to work has turned up working in a way and at a time you weren't quite planning on. And that's really the challenge for us, I think, temperamentally as Presbyterians, as it was for Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield in The Great Awakening. They had no categories for what they were seeing, but they had evidence that the Spirit was at work using his word to draw people. It was chaotic, it was converting, it was frightening, and it was fruitful. It was in parts superstitious and in other parts supernatural. But it needed practical ordering by the Bible. It needed shape being brought to it. And I think that's part of what Paul is calling us to do here. So notice how Paul applies these principles from verses 26, 33, and 40 to three situations in worship. These, all of them, have to do with when people should speak and when they, in love for others and reverence for the Lord, should be silent. I'm not going to talk about these in detail. We haven't got time, but these examples are, I think, Paul applying these three principles in three functions or examples of of worship in the church. The first example regards tongues speakers. He's already spoken about this at the first part of Chapter 14, he said, if there's no one to interpret, he's saying to the person praying in tongues, don't make a big deal about it. Don't make your tongues experience the focus of everyone's attention. Why? 
Well, because if there's no interpretation, you are to keep the gift for whom it is meant. It's meant as a gift for you, an individual gift of private prayer. The second example regards prophets. And again, I don't think many of us have ever seen something like this. But whatever the source was for the prophecies that were produced, or however it worked, and it seems to have worked in various ways, Paul says people with this gift need to exercise it in turn. If someone else is sharing, be quiet while the prophecy is heard and weighed, no more than two or three, he says. Of course, however the Corinthians viewed prophecy, the fact is prophecy doesn't trump everything else. Verse 32, it was and is always to be subservient to and weighed against Scripture And the third example regards women. This is very specific in a way that's lost now, I think, in people's assumptions and fears about what the Bible might be saying about women. But it has to do specifically with prophecy. And it can only be understood, I think, in that context. Because Joel had said, you remember, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. The church believed that. The church practiced that. We have indications even in chapter 11, verse 5, that that was the case, that both men and women were rightly prophesying in the church service. And then that would, those prophecies, be weighed by those um, who were in authority. So men and women would offer prophecies. And like tongue speakers and prophets, once the prophecies had been given, it was time to be quiet while others, likely the elders, weighed it. But in this particular culture, particularly, there was a social concern that Mrs. Jones of Corinth would be in a position to judge whether Mr. Jones of Corinth's prophecy was acceptable or not, which in that culture especially was just not on. But there's no reason to take this as saying, on the one hand, that women should never utter a word in church. That's church, that is to contradict what Paul has already said. Uh, Nor is it to say that unordained women or men, for that matter, should be preaching. There is a time to be quiet. There is a time within the order of things to allow those charged with the authority to spiritually lead to do so and to make judgment on these things. So summing up, asking Paul's question for us, how does this work? How do we bring this back to Richmond and the needs of a local church today? I have to say I'm not entirely sure. But think about it perhaps this way. Think about a worship service as if it were a magnificent symphony, a concert to which you've not only been invited to attend, but one in which you, along with the rest of the orchestra, have been invited to bring your instrument and play. And as a church, Paul is reminding us there will not be proper amazement at the piece of music the composer has written. It won't receive its glory unless you and I come expecting that the conductor himself will conduct in person according to the score which he has made clear and that every musician which he is calling has been given their particular part to play. There's almost nothing the Corinthians had that we haven't been given more of. The knowledge we have now of the clear priority of scripture The biblical theology that we now have after many centuries of looking at Scripture and speaking through it systematically of the role of the Holy Spirit and of the Bible. The assurance of God's unmerited grace. The opportunity you have to build up the church and to glorify Christ 
by serving him among your friends and neighbours because you enjoy, many of you, a faith that is mature. The danger for us, of course, is probably not that we will lose control and go wild, but that we will never be listening for the music. So Paul says, and I think we should listen to this, we particularly earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit, as many and as varied as they are, and as generous as the giver is. But more than that, above that, desire what will build up the church most, which is the greatest gift of the Spirit, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you remember, says, I don't give gifts like the world does, with strings attached, with balance due. He gives knowing that we will mess this up. He gives knowing that we don't deserve it. He gives knowing that we can't afford it. He gives knowing that what we expect from him is a stone or a scorpion, but what he wants to give us are good gifts. So across all of the traditions of the church and all the backgrounds that we have come from, for some of you this is familiar and of course should be practiced. For others it is unfamiliar and perhaps scary and should be avoided. But whatever we make or apply from this difficult text, let's pray for each other that our church and the people we reach out to may be built up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, in our unfamiliarity with experiences such as the Corinthians were experiencing, in our uh, mistrust quite often in thinking that you are the giver of good gifts and mistrusting that, Lord, in our own um, lack of maturity or lack of wisdom in knowing how to handle things that are matters of dispute between Christians, in our own need, Lord, for us to seek and to discern what you are doing and you are saying, we pray, Lord, that you would lead us. We pray that you would make clear your will through Scripture Lord, that you would teach us and mature us as a congregation, that we might build each other up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.